The Huguenots were a group of French Protestants of the 16th and 17th century who held to the Reformed or Calvinistic tradition of the Christian faith, influenced by the reformer John Calvin during the Protestant Reformation. They were concentrated mostly in the southern and western parts of France, while the rest of the country was, in essence, completely Catholic. And hence, the Huguenots faced ongoing hostility and constant pressures from the Catholic majority until the Edict of Nantes was signed in 1598, which allowed the Huguenots substantial religious, political, and military autonomy. For the first time, Protestants were viewed as more than mere schismatics and heretics. That is, until in 1685, the revocation of the Edict of Nantes made Protestantism illegal and made it impossible for French Protestants to freely worship God and the persecution of Christians ensued. All Christian ministers were given two weeks to leave the country unless they converted to Catholicism, and all other Protestants were prohibited from leaving the country altogether. But despite the prohibition, the renewed persecution consisting of torture caused as many as 400,000 French Protestants to flee their country at the risk of their lives, and those who remained were severely persecuted. Now, one of these persecuted Reformed Protestants, her name was Marie Durand, who came from a family of faithful believers who refused to bend to political pressures and religious persecution, and they continued to worship the true God of the Bible, even as it was illegal for them to gather together for worship services. From her youngest days, Marie Durand was used to hiding in order to read her Bible and to gather with other like-minded believers. Both Marie, Marie's parents were denounced by their neighbors and sent to prison where they eventually died. Marie Durand's brother, Pierre Durand, was a gifted Huguenot pastor and a gifted preacher, was also detained by the government officials and put to death eventually in prison. And so left alone at 19 years old, Marie Durand married, but a few months later, her husband too was arrested and soon Marie Durand herself was also sent to prison by association. The infamous prison where she was sent was an awful place, a merciless prison with no comfort, little air, almost no light, no air conditioning. So nobody's complaining here. Scorching in the summer, freezing in the winter. And this prison would often hold over 40 Huguenot women who were packed in there for many, many decades. And Marie Durand was its youngest prisoner. She would be there for the next 38 years of her life. She had already lost so much, and the temptation to abandon her faith was so great. Catholic priests would be available at the prison 24 hours a day, and only one word of renunciation of their faith would gain her freedom from the wretched prison. All the prisoners had to say was, I recant. But for 38 years, Marie Durand did not recant. She preferred obedience to God over temporary freedom, in fact, even in her miserable confinement, she was known to encourage older fellow prisoners. And as a gifted writer, sent out many gracious correspondences to other believers, encouraging her sisters in Christ to fight against the temptation of abjuring their faith. When she was finally released from prison decades later, 38 years later, the word registar, or in English translated resist, was engraved in the rock of the prison wall where Marie lived for most of her life. In the face of suffering and persecution, how can believers remain faithful and persevere 
as Marie Durand did. This afternoon, we're concluding our study through 1 Peter in our series, Hope in a Hostile World. And for the past 10 weeks, we've been considering how Christians can persevere in faith through sufferings and persecution, living in a world that is antagonistic to Christianity. In the letter, the author of the epistle, Apostle Peter, exhorts Christians dispersed all across northern Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, that we as believers are elect exiles, chosen pilgrims of God, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and that we are en route to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us, which by God's power is being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of our faith, though it is tested by fire, may be found more precious than gold, and result in praise and glory and honor to God at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And hence, Peter, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, urges us as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our souls, and to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against us, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of His visitation. We honor everyone. We love the brotherhood. We fear God and honor the emperor because we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen? Last Sunday from 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, I shared that even in the face of suffering and persecution, Christians are good leaders and followers, that biblically qualified elders of the local church lead cooperatively and shepherd the flock of God lovingly, and that we, all of us as church members, serve humbly. And this afternoon from our passage, Peter shares some concluding words about how Christians can persevere to the end, reminding us that persevering, persevering is what Christians do. Let me say that again. Persevering is what Christians do. To say it another way, one of the truest marks of a genuine born-again Christian is that they persevere in faith to the end. As Jesus says in Matthew 10.10, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So simply, Christians are perseverers. Amen? Christians are perseverers. So my question for us this afternoon from the text, how will you, how will you persevere to the end in the face of fiery trials? From our passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14, I want to share with you four reasons why true Christians will persevere to the end. Four reasons why Christians will persevere to the end. Here's the outline so you know what's coming. Point number one, from verses 6 through 7, because God cares for you. Because God cares for you, verses 6 through 7. Point number 2, from verses 8 through 9, we're in this together. You will persevere because we're in this together. Point number 3, from verses 10 through 11, how will you persevere? Because God will glorify you. God will glorify you. And fourth and finally, from verses 12 through 14, 
God's true grace is upon you. God's true grace is upon you. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will remind you afresh the gift of salvation that we have been granted wholly by Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension is a salvation that guarantees a victorious outcome. And I pray if there's anyone here who is not a Christian, or if you're not sure that you are, thank you so much for joining us today. You could have been anywhere doing anything else, but you are here. And I want to say that there is no better place that you can be than with God's people under God's word to start off your week. We have been praying for you that through this message, you will come to know the one who is able to forgive your sins, to save you from sins, and persevere you through various trials and sufferings of this broken, fallen world. His name is Jesus, and we pray that you will surrender to him today. He is a gracious and loving Savior and Lord. So let's turn now to the passage found on page 1016 and 17 of the Blue Bibles around you. If you are new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14 And as you listen, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open throughout the entire duration of the message and follow along as I read and preach to help you better retain these words. And by the way, if you do not have a Bible uh, to read at home, please take one of those blue Bibles with you as a gift from us to help you grow in God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. Again, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, look at the passage with us so that you will be able to know that this is God's Word. Humble yourselves, therefore... Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour someone. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand for a minute. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. The first reason why Christians will persevere to the end, point number one, God cares for you from verses six through seven. Let's look at those verses again. It says this, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The first observation we can make is that anytime you see the word therefore, we should ask the question, why is the word therefore, therefore? Well, Peter had just exhorted us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, if you desire the grace of God, If you desire the grace of God to persevere you in your faith through afflictions and trials in this life, if you don't want God to oppose you, Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. I want to say that again. If you don't want God to oppose you, if you don't want God against you, 
humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Peter has already taught us suffering and persecution is inevitable to faithful Christians according to God's will in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. That Christians ought not to be surprised when suffering and persecution comes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. And that it is in fact God's refining fire from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. And as such, that believers should not resist or retaliate against persecutors or rage against God in suffering, but humble oneself under the mighty hand of God who is sovereign over the believer's life or over us as well as any persecutor or any uh, circumstances or sufferings that may come our way. Of course, humility, the idea of humbling oneself or making oneself low is a posture Jesus himself valued and taught and modeled through his teachings and with his life. Just refer back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. It talks about how Jesus himself humbled himself so that we might live. After all, the first beatitude of the Sermon on the Mount, which is really a description of Jesus himself, is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, according to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. And it really summarizes this reality, that the humble, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. It's a common biblical theme rooted in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 2, verses 7 through 8, it says this, the Lord makes poor, and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Ezekiel seventeen twenty four. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high trees and make high the low trees. Dry up green trees and make dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. In the New Testament, Matthew 23, verse 12 says this, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 1, 52 says this, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And one more, James 1, 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Of course, this is possible because, did you notice the phrase, the mighty hand of God? You see, our God is not some distant God. He's not some fairy tale God. He's not a God who is bound to a cold, inanimate, dead statue. He is not a God who was a human being who was elevated to the status of God by men after he died. Our God is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God the one true God, the always and forever eternally existent God, the creator of all things, the redeemer and savior of sinners, the sovereign Lord of all. It is his mighty hand that delivered Israel from slavery in the great exodus from Egypt. And it was his hand that was behind the mighty works in the New Testament, the signs and the miracles which pointed to who Jesus is, the Son of God, truly God and truly man, his incarnation, his sinless life, his substitute death, his resurrection, his ascension, fulfilled what has been written and spoken of for generations. Jesus brought forth the new exodus of his chosen people from the slavery of sin and death into a new and eternal life. And Peter says to us, humble yourselves under this mighty hand of God, 
so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And what Peter mainly means at the proper time or in due time or at the opportune time, it certainly doesn't mean in this lifetime. The exalting of the humble here is not some idea of God elevating or elevating our social, financial, political status or our reputation here on earth. But it specifically means the return of Christ. It's the time Peter has been referring to all throughout his letter in 1 Peter 1.5, ready to be revealed in the last time. In 1 Peter 1.13, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 2.12, on the day of his visitation. It is then when Jesus Christ is revealed, will be revealed in full glory, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords, when you have endured through the fiery trial, you will be vindicated. We're going to talk more about this in point number three, but listen carefully. That's when our faith will turn to sight When Jesus returns, that is the proper time when we will know, not in part, but fully, the salvation that was kept for us by God's power through faith in Christ Jesus, our gracious Lord. You get now why Paul has been repeatedly exhorting us in the face of suffering and persecution to submit to all human authorities, citizens to earthly rulers, slaves to masters, wives to husbands, spiritually young ones to elders. Why? Because God knows. And if we're honest with ourselves, you and I know also, as sinners and rebels against God, there is not a single one of us to whom submission comes naturally. Who can honestly raise your hand right now and say, yeah, I love submitting to people. I love submitting to whoever. Nobody would admit that because it's not true. The simple fact of the matter is none of us want to submit. We want to be our own gods and our own masters. We in America especially know we value our own rights and our own freedoms. But God says, humble yourselves, even under imperfect earthly authorities who are visibly present before you, in order that you may humble yourselves before an invisible God who has revealed himself clearly and effectually to you. Don't miss the finite but oh-so-certain truth of this point. Humility is a sure mark of a true Christian. Humility is a sure mark of a true Christian because the one who knows how to bow his or her knees under or before God has no fear in humbling himself or herself before men in whom God is in sovereign control over all. Think with me, isn't that so true? The one who knows his secure standing with God doesn't have to constantly try to prove himself before men. They don't have to feel threatened or insecure when someone else is simply better than them. They don't have to constantly compete against others or be defensive when they are not recognized because they are confident in who they are because they are confident in who their Jesus is. Amen? I love these verses because if you really think about it, this is half or maybe most of all man's battles, the fight for approval, the fight for acceptance. Every single person on earth, believer or unbelievers, shares one thing in common, desires one thing, spends their entire lives seeking this one thing, to be loved, to be accepted, to be wanted. There is not a single person who's ever lived on earth that said, I don't need to be loved. I, don't, I, I want to be hated by everyone. There's not a single person. 
This is why one of the worst forms of punishment, even in prison, is solitary confinement. Whether you are a love me or a like me or a respect me, everyone needs someone. This is because we are created in God's image. He who is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, the Trinity, the holy unity, the perfect community created us in love for love. That's why the words of verse 7 are some of the most precious words of this letter. Why will you persevere through an onslaught of suffering and persecution in this life? Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. This verse does two things, two very powerful and substantial realities. How to humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God. It says it right there in verse, 10, verse 7, right? Casting all your anxieties on him. And the reason why you can do so, because he cares for you. So let's talk about those things. First of all, casting all your anxieties on him means you are relinquishing. You are surrendering your control to God rightfully. You recognize he is God and you are mere men, right? You are acknowledging that you can't do this alone. You are confessing to him that you are needy, that he is worthy, that he is able, that he is God, and he himself alone is God. You're saying, you are my God. As Psalm 37.5 says, commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Psalm 37.5. Psalm 55 verse 22 says, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. This is how you humble yourself before God in prayer, in constant dependence on him, on your knees and on your faces in worship, in reading and hearing and obeying his word. You are saying, not in me, not in me, but in you, not I, but Christ. I love what Spurgeon says, faith never makes herself her own plea. She rests all her argument upon the blood of Christ. Faith never makes herself her own plea. Look at my faith. No, she rests all her argument upon the blood of Christ. And what better reason to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God than to know that he cares for you. He cares for you. You can cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Can I get an amen? Amen. Whenever Emmett, my three-year-old son, is being bad, and he knows it too when he is being bad, it's not terrible twos, but it's terrible threes. Have you experienced it? After I warn Emmett one time, two time, and the third time my voice is raised, Emmett, no. But whenever I do address my son that way, voice raised, Instead of running away, Emmett actually runs into me to be embraced, to be hugged and held. Because while he fears the punishment that may come because of his bad behavior, he knows the safest place to be is in the arms of his daddy. The safest place to be is in the arms of his daddy. Brothers and sisters, when you are in the fiery furnace of suffering, I wonder if you know and believe that the safest place you can be is in the arms of your heavenly father. Psalm 46, one says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And in Psalm 91, 14 through 16, God says, because he holds fast 
To me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That's Psalm 91, verses 14 through 16. That's gold. Write that down. Memorize it. Brothers and sisters, let me reiterate. God loves you and cares for you. John 3, 16, translated rightly in the CSB. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians 13 explains all about how God's perfect love is for us. Romans 8 tells us nothing can separate us from the love of God. Ephesians 3 teaches us God's love is too great for us to fully ever comprehend. And Psalm 5 shows us God's love is a shield surrounding us, keeping us safe. So let me ask you this afternoon, brothers and sisters, do you believe God loves you? How do you humble yourselves before God in the way that you cast all your anxieties on Him? In a day, in a season when anxiety may be a bit trendy, I don't mean that in a demeaning way whatsoever, but in the sense that everyone is talking about being anxious in some form or another in this season of the pandemic, I wonder how you as a Christian resolves to trust in God through, through your anxieties, casting all your anxieties on Him, rather than clinging to your anxieties all by yourself. What does your prayer life reveal about how you do so? What does your daily Bible reading show about your reliance on your loving and trustworthy Father? Do you run into His arms when anxiety and suffering and persecution comes, or do you run away? Do you rely on your unreliable selves or in your fears? How will Christians persevere to the end? Know and believe and cling to the promise and the truth. God cares for you. Amen? Second reason why true Christians will persevere to the end. We're in this together. Look around you. We are in this together. Verses 8 through 9, it says this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour someone. Resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I hope you are catching on by now and by my points that persevering in faith has less to do with what you do, but what truth faith in Christ simply is. I'm trying to tell you what our faith is in its essence, not about what you do, but what Christ has done. And the second reason this passage shows us why, as Christians, we are perseverers is because we are in this together. Follow me now. Why do I say this when verse 8 says it right there? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. And verse 9, it says, resist him firm in your faith. Please understand, clearly, I am not minimizing in any way whatsoever the imperatives that are commanded here in these verses. A true Christian should be sober-minded. A true Christian should be watchful. Why? Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. Let your guard down and the lion will pounce on you. That is a fact of reality. Literally, the description there is of a predator gulping down its prey. And John 10.10 confirms the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That is Satan's purpose. Rest assured, 
When you gamble with Satan, you will be swallowed up. When you gamble with Satan, you will be swallowed up. That is his game plan. That is his end game to cause you to sin, to cause you to doubt your faith, to isolate you, to separate you, to destroy you and kill you. That is Satan's game. That is sin's lure. So you should be self-controlled. You should be watchful and vigilant. You should resist him. But see how you resist him. The phrase, firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. The way you fight Satan is not by trying to fight off sin and temptation by your own power. You will never win. You will not be strong enough by your own willpower to fight off Satan's lures. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your deepest, darkest urges. If the internet algorithms know your habitual patterns, your soft spots, your weak weak spots, and your temptations, trust me when I say, when the Bible teaches us that we are not capable of handling Satan on our own, left to ourselves and in our own powers, our fate is dark and hopeless. That was what we were and that is what we are. But that's why Jesus came. Hallelujah. He alone defeated sin, Satan, and death forever. In Him alone, we can be firm in our faith because the faith we have is not something we can conjure up within ourselves. Faith is a gift we have received from God. Faith is a gift we all have received from God. That's why Spurgeon again says, it is not great faith, but true faith that saves. And the salvation lies not in the faith, but in Christ in whom faith trusts. It is not the measure of faith, but the sincerity, the genuineness of faith, which is the point to be considered. That's why to persevere in faith is to know that this fight of faith is not meant to be fought alone, but in the strength, in the strength of Christ. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Ephesians 3.16, According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Hallelujah. 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then... Then I am strong because Christ is in me. Man, there's so many verses that I can share with you regarding this, but here's one more, Romans 8, 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Hallelujah. It is in his love we were created. It is in his love we were not abandoned in our sin. It is in his love we were saved. It is in his love we will be sustained. It is in his love we will persevere. It is in his love we will be victorious. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who, what can be against us? Amen? Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, this is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the reason why we Christians can be firm in our faith because the object of our faith, the salvation that God himself has purchased for us through his son Jesus Christ, can never ever be taken away from those who are truly his. The good news that God who is holy unlike any other created all things in love for his glory and for our good. 
But man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to be gods unto ourselves, deliberately disobeying God's word, choosing death over life. And that is our daily decision, wasn't it? And as a result, man was separated from God, entirely helpless to save himself from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. But God, but God in his mercy had a plan from the very beginning to redeem a people for us to know his great love. How? By sending his own son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man to live the life that we could not live to die the death that we should have died. He took our place as a substitute on the cross for our sins, sins of the past, sins of the present, sins of the future for all our unrighteousness. He paid the debt we would have paid in eternal hell. But Jesus Christ rose again on the third day from death, conquering sin, Satan, and hell forever, which meant that God accepted his sacrifice once and for all. And whosoever Anyone, everyone who would repent and believe in him will not die and go to hell, but participate in his resurrection and live the new and eternal life forevermore with him. At his invitation, friends, visitors, by no merit of our own, but fully to his credited righteousness on our behalf, we are firm in our faith until we are together with him face to face when he returns. So if you are here and you are not a Christian or simply are not sure that you are, thank you so much again for joining us today. But I wonder if you can claim that something in your life is firm and fully dependable. Can you, can you say that confidently? Something, someone in your life is firm and fully dependable? The truth of the matter is everything in this life is temporary and fleeting. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is inviting you today, right now, in this moment, to repent of your sins. That means to stop trusting in the things of this world. Stop trusting in yourselves. You know you've been disappointed. Trust in him. Repent of your sins and believe that he died and rose again for you. Yes, even you. He died and rose again for you so that you could be forgiven of your sins, so that you could have new life. And he's inviting you to trust in him today and forevermore in him as your Lord and your Savior. If you want to talk more about how you can follow Jesus, we'd love to talk to you at the close of service at this door. Philip, our service leader, will be at this door, and Jeremy Leong, our other pastor, will be standing at the back door. Please, please come and talk to us about how you can follow Jesus on this hot day. The Lord has brought you here for a reason. Amen? Brothers and sisters of NCBC, Peter wants to emphasize the point again. Suffering Christians, struggling Christian, weak and weary Christians, you are not alone. Hallelujah. We are in this together. Verse 9 again says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You are not the only one struggling in that. You are not the only one suffering in that. You are not the only one suppressed and maybe even suffocating in that situation. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I hope that encourages you. You are not alone. Have you ever seen that viral video when a hungry lion latches onto a buffalo's neck? It was on Twitter one time. And the lion is just hanging on and the buffalo is trying to get away. Okay? And the buffalo surely would have been the lion's dinner if he was all alone. But then, dun, 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 music builds up, and this buffalo just comes out of nowhere. Friend buffalo storms in and strikes the lion on his side, 
And the lion is still clinging on, but he's hurting. Soon you see a whole herd of buffaloes charging at the lion. And the lion releases his grip and runs away. Lest the lion himself gets trampled and left as roadkill. I don't know if buffalo eat lion. That's kind of weird. But what an encouraging illustration and video and reminder that we are stronger together. That you are not alone. Amen? What an encouraging reminder that the Christian life isn't meant to be lived out on your own. That even suffering for faith isn't something you do on your own. That there are countless brothers and sisters in the faith running the race with you, fighting the good fight with you. I want to say again, encourage you again, just look around you. Every single person here isn't here because they've mastered the Christian life. Every person in here is here because we need to be reminded of God's word. Every person in here is here because we need each other. Just another reminder why church membership is so crucial for your spiritual life and biblically mandated. Why the Sunday gathering is essential and not optional. Why the virtual church is an entirely oxymoronic concept, a foreign concept. Don't compromise. Don't compromise. Don't compromise this Sunday gathering. Prioritize it. Commit to it. Brothers and sisters, how are you doing? Encouraging one another toward love and good deeds. Let me ask you again, how are you doing? Discipling one another. Okay, I get it. You're busy. It's a hard season. It's not a good time right now. Well, let me ask you again. How are you doing discipling one another? How are you doing obeying the Great Commission as a Christian? How can you this week reach out to a fellow church member and encourage them with God's Word? How can you this week meet up with a fellow church member for lunch or coffee and encourage, encourage, encourage? I didn't say annoy, I didn't say be a burden. I didn't say exert yourself. I said encourage, bless, edify a fellow church member by praying for them, by serving them, by loving them, and not expecting anything in return. True Christians persevere because we are in this together, because we regularly gather together. Third reason why Christians will persevere through suffering and persecution, these are much shorter points. Point number three because God will glorify you, because God will glorify you. Look at verse 10 and 11. It says this, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The reason why Christians are perseverers and why truly born-again believers will persevere to the end is because in the perseverance of God's people, In the perseverance of God's people, He, God Himself, will be glorified. Why? Because God will do as He said He will do, and hence He will be glorified. That's why verse 11 says, to Him, right? We persevere to the end, but to Him be the dominion forever and ever. To Him be the glory forever. Don't you recognize, don't you realize that this whole story started by His glory? sustained through his glory and ends for his glory, that history is his story. He, Jesus, is the beginning and the end, that Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the author and finisher of our faith. That's verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Two things from that verse. One, suffering has an expiration date. Suffering has an expiration date. 
It says, after you have suffered a little while, compared to the exceeding joy you will experience in heaven for all eternity, suffering on earth is incomparable. Whatever you think is so painful and difficult now, just ask some of the older folks. When that time passes, when that season passes, you will not even remember it anymore. As such, suffering here on earth is so minute compared to the eternal joy, exceeding joy and glory you'll experience with Christ. I don't mean to, again, undermine your suffering at all. I myself have experienced grave sufferings in my life. But I do mean to give you perspective in how the Bible sees suffering. It is not an end all. It will pass. It will be over soon. Because after a little while, the God of all grace, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I'm going to be talking about more of this, what Peter means by God of all grace, and also down in verse 12, what is the true grace of God in the next point? But here, let me point out two things about verse 10. Man, a precious promise given to true believers who will face tremendous suffering and persecution on earth. God has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And this God who has called you by name will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What does that mean? God will restore you. God will heal you. Whatever ailments you have, whatever weaknesses you feel, God will make you whole. God will confirm you. What does that mean? God will justify you fully and finally. God will prove to you all and to all your doubters and all your haters that your faith was indeed true and worth it all along. God will strengthen you. What does that mean? On that day, you will struggle with weaknesses and sicknesses no more. You will be powerful. You will know true victory. God will establish you. What does that mean? You'll be fully secure. You will be finally found and finally known. You will be firm and unshakable. And all those words, all those words to describe that you will be glorified as Christ is glorified. Now, I don't know what all that means except to say to you it will be the most amazing thing. You will experience, it will take all of eternity for you to come to grasp with what that means to be glorified with Christ You'll be in the presence of the most glorious being, the God of the universe. You will relish in his glory. You will sunbathe in his glory. And trust Peter when he says to him, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says, may he rule forever. He alone is the true and good and gracious king, worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Hallelujah. How will Christians persevere Why will Christians persevere? Fourth and finally, God's true grace is upon you. God's true grace is upon you. Thank you for persevering in this heat. Hallelujah. You're training in righteousness. Verses 12 through 14, four subpoints for this final point. Very brief. First subpoint, how do you know? How can you be convinced that God's true grace is upon you? First subpoint, the grace of God's word. The grace of God's word. Look at verse 12. By Salvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. First, I want to point out the phrase, this is the true grace of God. Peter says, stand firm in it. What is Peter saying? 
What is Peter saying the true grace of God is and for believers to stand firm in it? What is Peter saying? Peter is referring to the letter that he had just written. It's a letter, he says, delivered through a faithful brother named Silvanus, written to exhort and declare that this is the true grace of God. What is the true grace of God? The Word of God. The Gospel of God. So stand firm in it. Stand firm on the Word of God. Stand firm on the Gospel of God. Brothers and sisters, the true grace of God that has been given to us by the God of all grace, first and foremost, is the Word of God. The Bible says the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, according to Hebrews 4.12. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired or breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word, this word, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you this afternoon, come on, do you read the word of God? Let me ask you again, do you read the word of God? Let me ask you again, do you read the word of God? Do you love it? Do you treasure it? Do you obey it? Do you share it? Do you know the true grace of God in his word? Second point, the grace of God's election. Look at verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Simply, the she referred to in this verse is not referencing to another of Peter's associates who is a lady. No, but as 2 John verse 1 and 13 refers to the church as the lady, this she is referring to the local church community in Babylon. And let me just conclusively tell you, because there's a lot of debates, that Babylon is referencing the city of Rome. So Peter is saying the church in Rome, who is likewise chosen, the people, the congregation, the local church, believers in Rome, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, John Mark, who is Peter's spiritual son or disciple. The point of this verse, again, is to emphasize the point that God has chosen or elected a people for his own possession. Again, reminding us we are not alone. We are in this together. We are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, visible and invisible, throughout the generations around the globe who testify of God's electing grace. Hallelujah. From every tribe, nation, language, and tongue, his grace is upon us through his elect exiles. Third subpoint: the grace of the fellowship of believers. Look at verse 14, the first part. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Let me just say concisely, you need to do some cultural exegesis before you apply this text. But let me just do it for you. If you go to a fellow member today and greet them with a kiss of love without their permission, in fact, if they are not your immediate family and you practice this particularly outdated cultural practice of common greeting, you will be slapped. Fist bumps. High fives, handshakes, side hugs, hugs are more acceptable. If you want to argue with me on this, we can take it offline. But don't test me. Try greeting someone today with a kiss of love today and see if you will not get slapped. Anyways, the point, anyways, the point is to draw out the familial unity, oneness, and love within the fellowship of believers. As family members often greet each other with kisses of love, that is the intimacy within brothers and sisters in Christ. Sadly, in our modern day, the sin of this world has impacted us and the dynamic of the local church that we can't exercise this specific practice of holy kisses to one another, but the idea remains the same. 
The relationship and unity and oneness between brothers and sisters in Christ is stronger than the bond between blood brothers and sisters of earth, according to Scripture. Brothers and sisters, what grace we have been given who come from hard and divided, broken families. We have a whole community of faith and an inseparable bond forged by the blood of Christ. They will know us. They out there will know us by the love within us. Hallelujah. Amen. Fourth and finally, subpoint the grace of God's peace. Look at that last phrase. Peace to all who are in Christ. How will Christians persevere to the end? Remember this, that the greatest, most impossible obstacle to God has been atoned, has been repaired by Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because you have been justified by faith, you, you and I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, let me remind you again, whatever suffering or persecution you are facing now today here on earth, God has made a way for you to be with him. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, in him, brothers and sisters, we will persevere. Why? Because God cares for you. We are in this together. God will glorify you. And God's true grace is upon us all through the word, through his electing grace of salvation, through the fellowship of his believers, and through the peace of God that reigns in us, that has been gifted to us by our gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, our King. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gracious, glorious God that we serve, that thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became poor. Father, what a joyful gospel that we have the privilege to proclaim that you are our hope in life and death. Christ alone, Christ alone. We honor you. We bring you glory and honor and praise for all our days, no matter what comes our way. We thank you for this reminder in Jesus' name.